Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's the second time it's gone off. They never go home, they never go home, they never go home, those, those, those boys. That's... Yeah. They have asked for that, really. Well, you can laugh. I want to walk up. I'm a little bit of an idealist, but having said that, I want to be like me. What are you doing down here, you Johnny man? <laughs> Just when exactly is a blatant dive to win a penalty not a blatant dive to win a penalty? Maybe when British TV pundits are commentating on a young British player. Hello and welcome to a Bank Holiday Monday edition of the Second Captain's Football Podcast. Hi Ken, I'm Murph. Hi, Hello there, I'm sure you know the player I'm talking about and I think you know the pundits I'm talking about too. Harry Kane. <laughs> Not Harry Kane in this case. Young Marcus Rashford. There was fairly widespread condemnation of Marcus Rashford's penalty win. Is that what you call them these days? He won a penalty, so it's a penalty win mm-hmm. against yeah. Swansea. Yes. I sometimes think the moral outrage over diving is a bit over the top. To yes. be honest. It happens. It's not great, but nobody gets hurt. It's, not, it's nowhere near as big a deal as your great bugbear again. The likes of Neil Taylor's leg-breaking tackle getting two, a two-game ban. Mm. <laughs> you hear people saying, oh, diver, diving should be a three-game ban, then they'd stop doing it. Well, yeah, okay. Yep, they probably would do it a bit less if they're going to get a ridiculously over-the-top ban for it. But there are more important things going on, such as these ridiculous over-the-top tackles. It is important, though, to acknowledge a dive when a dive is taking place, mm. I feel. So I'm not quite sure what Michael Owen and Dean Saunders were on about in BT Sport yesterday. Unless you've been in the position, it's very hard to, to explain. And I did exactly the same. I went, I was at White Hart Lane, and I never did that. Yeah. And I ended up breaking my foot. Paul Robinson, the goalkeeper, broke my foot. And then that turned into a, a knee ligament injury. And then I was out for a, a year and a half because I never, I didn't protect myself. Right. I planted my foot. And then once you planted, you're not in control. Got you. So basically what you're saying is he had to get out of the challenge, therefore... As a football fan, you can look at it and think it looks like a dive, but at the same time, the referee made raid, the wrong decision. Raid the challenge. Okay. Jake, it's raiding the challenge so that right, you don't okay. get hurt. It's um, not a pen- We all agree it's not a penalty, but it's, 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 I'm hesitant to say it's a dive as well. It's turned into one, it looks like one, and it's. But having been in that situation, you are more protecting yourself than trying to cheat everybody. Very professional stuff from Jake Humphrey there. So, what you're saying is. What, wait, wait, what are you saying again? <laughs> he was nice, smooth there. I think, we, I think we know what they were saying. I just don't agree with it. Michael Owen says he's speaking from personal experience that he once planted his leg, didn't dive, sorry, didn't move out of the way of the challenge and therefore got himself badly injured. Fair enough. But Fabianski did pull out of the challenge. So there was no injury that was going to occur to Marcus Rashford if he had just not dived, I would have thought. No, I mean, the, the point there is the referee really, you know, needs to see that. But I think I actually don't think it was as bad a decision as the one. It, I think it was a bad decision, but I don't think it was as bad a decision as the one that uh, Sané got a penalty for. Mm. Sané one was just ridiculous, mm. you know. Like he he got the ball, he played it the wrong direction, and then he sort of jumped into his opponent and fell over. I mean, it was it was nonsense. I mean, with the with the Rashford one, it is a typical situation where a penalty does. Happen. Oh, all the time. Yeah, it wasn't. Yeah. It wasn't. It was in any way any more egregious than most of them. No, I mean we've seen them all do it. Only. But what I, I think, if you're Owen and Hargreaves or any pundit, you have to acknowledge, like if you, this happened, and if you don't think it's that big a deal, say it's not that big a deal. But you have to say it's a dive. If you're Roy Keane, yeah. you would he would have doubtless said it's exactly like I did against Andorra in that game <laughs> qualifying for the 2002 <laughs> World Cup. You know, I mean, we've all been there. But remember the incident with Coutinho in the box against Crystal Palace yeah. a couple of weeks ago? Got a kick in the heel, stayed up, didn't get a penalty, definitely should have got a penalty, definitely would have gotten a penalty if he'd gone down. 
Yeah. I mean, this is just, like that's the reality of it. I mean, if you don't go down, you definitely won't get a penalty. Like, there's no way in hell, no matter how bad the tackle is, if you're in the area and you're still standing after the tackle, the referee won't give you mm-hmm. a penalty. So. You know, against that, you got to remember who Rashford's playing for. You know, if he doesn't get a penalty there, he's he's going to hear all about it. Yeah. You know what I mean? He really he really will. You know, Mourinho is going to say to him, "Look, you know, this is a tough game, and you've got to take the gifts that come your way." You know, accept those gifts. When a goalkeeper comes rushing out, be aware that's a situation where you might be able to get a penalty. You know, Mourinho is obviously training players to think that way. I would say most managers would want their strikers in particular to have that thought process. No, I, th- I wouldn't I, say there are too many shining lights saying telling their strikers not to dive to win penalties. Yeah, I mean, I, I think so. Uh, although I do think I do think it's something Mourinho does. I mean, it's something Duff talked about before when he when he played for. I mean, you know, look, the referee is an important factor in the game. Give the referee a little bit of help sometimes, you know, because because it's a, it's a tough job and they're only human, and sometimes they're going to miss things that happen. So they just, get a lot of stick, you know. So give them a little bit of help. I actually didn't think the Harry Kane one was a, was a dive at all. I just thought it was a clumsy challenge, and he got a penalty for it. You know, it, it struck me with Harry Kane that he he actually got he was wasn't expecting to get kicked, and then he did, and he and there was a moment's hesitation. And then he was like, "Okay, that's like that, that'll get me a penalty. I'll go down." But it was—I mean, it was—you know—he was kicked. It wasn't like the other two where he, where the players had to kind of—they weren't going to get touched unless they did the touching themselves. Mm-hmm. So, um, so I would absolve him. Quick heads up on an exciting week coming up on the World Service. We're going to tell you the story of the 1926 All Ireland Football Semi Final, which happened to be the first live broadcast of a sporting event anywhere in Europe. Apparently, RTE, what was it called at the time? It wasn't RTE. 2RN. 2RN was ahead of the curve, ahead of the BBC and others in getting that out there. We're going to talk to the Irish jockey who was given his last rights after a nightmare fall in the race in England in 1994. We're going to discuss the heavyweight fight of our generation. We finally have one that we can bore our grandkids <laughs> with. It's only taken about 25 to 30 years of watching boxing, but we're there in the end. We'll discuss what else we're going to talk about. Kennedy Political Podcast, Players Share, Richie Sadler. Loads of great stuff coming up over the next few days. If you've already signed up, we look forward to bringing all of that to you. If you are interested in becoming part of a new independent member-led form of broadcasting, you can join on secondcaptains.com for just a five or a month plus fat. That's Sport and Sport, Ken. So um, we're going to be talking uh, in more detail today with, about the Tottenham Arsenal game, uh, uh, which was a pretty resounding win for Tottenham, like a total, total domination. You know, there was never a moment when Arsenal looked like they were in the game. They were actually very lucky to come out of it having only lost 2-0. You know, Tottenham missed two really easy chances in the first half and kind of had great chances without even really getting going. Once they did get rolling, um, they battered Arsenal into submission pretty easily. Um, so we will talk to Jack about that. Uh, Jack Pitbrook, who was there. Um, I guess we could talk a little bit about uh, Manchester United, who have got uh, 10 draws at home. Um, this is only the second time in their history they've had that many draws at home. They had 11 in 1981. Um, so it's quite a record. And we'll also be there... Uh, unless they, they blow Crystal Palace away with um, four or more goals, which is possible, given the Palace will, will uh, almost certainly be safe from relegation by then. It's such a weird theme of the season, isn't it? All these draws, especially home draws. So they've got 17 wins and 14 draws. It's not impossible that they'll catch up, that the draws will catch up with the victories by the end of the season and they have the same amount of draws as wins, which is, I was going to say, unheard of. Well, listen, that's not going to happen because presumably they'll win a cup of their last few games, but it's not far off which is a bit of a strange one. Any theory as to why this is happening on an almost weekly basis? Conf- uh, confidence can't be low. It's not like they rarely lose games anymore. It's not like they're a team who's struggling in that sense, and yet they keep drawing with inferior teams. Uh, well, I mean, uh, did you, this, the Swansea game was kind of more, more of the same. I mean, they got a fairly lucky penalty, took the lead, didn't really do much after that, didn't really put Swansea under the kind of pressure that would have broken them down permanently. Swansea played well, much better than they've been playing for most of the season. Um, this is a team that previously won at Anfield, you know, having having just been losing relentlessly. So they, they do seem to play better in these types of matches. Yeah. Um, but, you know, Mourinho had been speaking about how we need to get ahead in these games, and then that's when the game becomes easy. But they get ahead in games and it doesn't become easy, because it's just the same kind of laboured uh, stuff going on. 
Um, there was an injury to Luke Shaw quite early in the game, which seems to have spread a little bit of bad feeling. I mean, Joe, what, well, what do you think of Jose Mourinho's comment about this? Uh, I mean, he was asked about it after the match, uh, and he said, I think Luke Shaw's must be a big injury to leave the pitch after nine minutes. I'm expecting a very big injury. So what's he what's he saying there? I mean, it sounds my reaction when I heard it when I heard him say this was, oh right, okay. So he's he seems to be challenging Luke Shaw. Like you better not you better not come in here with a mere flesh wound. You know what I mean? I, I'm expecting something Gore. pretty awful because yeah. you know a Manchester United player doesn't come off the field after ten minutes unless he's paralyzed. You know what a I mean? This twerp. is. <laughs> nice new hockey Simon yeah it's sort of like that feeling when you're a kid and you can't find something and you your mother comes along and says if I find this bloody thing hmm. and so then you're thinking well I, I do want this item I need her to find it but if she does find it I'm going to be I know, well, that, I've looked, I know that I've looked but what was the item I want that you lost oh no this would be quite a regular occurrence oh okay then I was always very good at finding her keys for her though Oh, so okay. there was always a sort of, uh, if I find these keys, mum, <laughs> shut up, you little freak. <laughs> <laughs> so that's what Luke Shaw's in now. He he doesn't want to be badly injured, but in a way, if he was badly injured, he'd means he's going to get in less trouble with his manager. Yeah, he'd want to be a little bit injured. Well, I mean, he, he Mourinho kind of talked a little bit about then uh, Jones and Smalling, who also missed the game. I hesitate to say injured because I mean, he's making it sound like he doesn't think they are. I mean, we were speaking last week about this caution, the culture of caution. You know, this this broken toe that Phil Jones is apparently so worried about that he doesn't feel he can play on it just because his toe is broken. Um, I, I didn't think it was a broken bone in your foot. It was the type of injury that you could run off. I mean, I would have thought it would actually only probably be aggravated by running. Mm-hmm. But... Jose Mourinho, I think, has had players who've played with such injuries before. Frank Lampard, I think, has done it before. Um, playing with a broken toe, a crack bone in a toe and some pain-killing injections. You know, I don't know which toe Phil Jones has broken. Uh, obviously, he thinks it's painful. I mean, Mourinho did say last week, you know, you know if, it was, if I had this injury, I'd play. <laughs> you know, he would have the character. He would have the character to put on the shirt and to... And to go out there, but he then he, he also suggested that maybe the the Manchester United supporters need to be a bit more understanding of where the team's at. He said, uh, "Did the supporters know it? Because if they know it and they think about it, they would be more supportive of the players who give everything, deserve everything, and are at their limits. The team is in trouble. The boys are in trouble. But when you give everything, I kind of demand more. I'm not happy with the result, but I am very happy with the boys. Be more supportive of the players," says manager, who's just said that about Luke Shaw. It's, it strikes me as a little inconsistent. Um, but well, no, it's, it's, it's actually perfectly consistent. Be supportive of... The players who supportive. give everything. Yeah, and then the other guys uh, who I've helpfully just named for you, yeah, don't like those guys. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I, I, guess, I guess so. Uh, I mean, I, I just find... It, like The thing is that players can empathise with the position of an injured player. Everybody's been injured. And nobody really likes to be in a situation where they feel they're not fit and your manager is putting pressure not just pressure public pressure on them like calling their <laughs> calling their uh, masculinity into question enough to you know, get a knock you don't need to go for a scan you know what i mean well yeah but i mean at least Keane was was speaking there in general terms you know when he said that he's talking in, in quite general terms i don't think he's maybe he was talking about everton players yeah. sure yeah. and Keane was also not too happy in the clip we played Quite recently, Ken, when you asked him what was so bad about faking injuries, yeah, what was so sorry, what was so bad about being accused of faking? Injuries? But he's he's also somebody who, um, I mean, th- there was the whole thing about Van Nistelrooy. You know, Van Nistelrooy used him to play when he was injured, and Keane used to, and then Keane had to retire, and his hip isn't gr- isn't great still, and Rude looks amazing. <laughs> Played for several more seasons, you know, was a bit was five years younger than Keane to be fair, but you know, he had a. He ended up uh, being fitter at the end of his career than Keane was, and and Keane reckoned, well, it was obviously because he took better better care of himself. You know, I always thought I was, I was being the sort of, I, I always had the yeah. tough guy attitude, but maybe I should have actually looked out for myself a little bit more. Um, but but the point about the situation Manchester United are in is because it's fixture congestion. According to Mourinho, we're tired and exhausted. This is the ninth match of April. It is not human. We have a squad of twenty-two that is reduced to thirteen or fourteen players. And he had a line about we can't walk from the toilet, the bed, the bed to the toilet now without breaking a leg. But you know, the, the nine games in April is a lot. 
But it is, on the other hand, comparable to, I mean, if you look at Real Madrid, they've played nine games in April. Barcelona have played nine games in April. Bayern Munich have played nine games in April. Borussia Dortmund have played nine games in April. It's almost as though nine games is quite a normal number of games to play if you're a big club and it's April. You know what I mean? It's it's like if you if you are if you've played well enough to be in the final stages of cup competitions, as Manchester United are in the Europa League, you know they they had fixtures rearranged because they got to the League Cup final. This is the way that it happens. I would actually say that their squad is better equipped than almost any squad in the league to deal with this situation. Um, Do you think, in some ways, he you know the way he talks about he's made it very clear that he feels the Europa League is the way winning the Europa League is a big trophy and is a better way into the Champions League. Maybe in retrospect, he might have sacrificed that competition earlier, in which case by now he'd have had a number of weeks and months of free reign to go ahead of Manchester. Maybe he didn't realise how badly City would falter, but that he that if he did have that extra bit of time, and I think it is, look, all these teams, if you're successful, you should have to play European football as well. Mm. There's no doubt that it's an advantage to have loads of time training rather than going off, in terms of your Premier League form, mm. rather than going off to God knows where playing European ties. Yeah, I think so. I mean, Tottenham got knocked out of the Europa League good and early. Was it January or February? February, presumably, when they um, exited that competition. So might that have been a better strategy for Mourinho? Maybe, I mean, but, you know, he's in a different situation from Tottenham. I mean, Tottenham... Maybe Mourinho does feel genuine pressure to actually win, win trophy, trophies. Yeah. You know, I mean, he did win the League Cup, but as we know, it doesn't really matter if you win the League Cup. It's it's not really uh, you don't get a huge amount of credit for it. I mean, just look at all the managers who've won it and them. In fact, you know, in recent times, it hasn't uh, it doesn't count for a whole lot. Uh, the Europa League is a bit different. You know, the Europa League is like. It's a trophy Manchester United have never won. Yeah, once you get into once you get into the later stages, you're you're in it to win it at that stage. Mm. And there is a bit yeah, Liverpool and other teams have had great nights in that competition, so it's it's not necessarily to be sniffed at. It just definitely doesn't help matters when you're uh, in the Premier League. That's uh, that's the situation with them anyway. Nine nine matches an inhuman burden. <laughs> um, but what's uh, happening is that there aren't going to be too many more Premier League matches on the horizon for Sunderland in the. Uh, foreseeable future they have been relegated officially um, and the hit pieces have started on poor old David Moyes I mean we were talking about his downbeat approach well he told us at the start it was unlikely that they'd stay up it's a very it? difficult job and it's it's more difficult it's turned out to be more difficult than I thought I knew it was going to be difficult but it's even more difficult than that you know that's sort of we. this is very difficult our situation is very difficult um, you know, hopefully we can improve. We need to stop letting in so many goals and s- start scoring more goals. Th- this is this is the type of stuff. He was kind of sleepwalking. It seemed to be towards towards the inevitable, um, and and a lot of the, basically there's a unanimous kind of uh, uh, consensus in all the papers um, yesterday and today that David Moyes, uh, notwithstanding the tough conditions uh, that any Sunderland manager has to deal with, did a bad job. Mm. And um, the, probably the most uh, eye-catching of these pieces is by Craig Hope in the Daily Mail. Um, David Moyes is dubbed the... David Moyes the vampire has sucked the life out of relegated Sunderland, is the headline. David Moyes is dubbed the energy vampire by a former Sunderland player. I was just trying to call up this piece and I just Googled Energy Vampire. And Energy Vampire, it turns out, is like a kind of, it's a thing. Like it's a, This player didn't necessarily come up with the term himself, although it is, it's, it's a term that you could imagine yeah. somebody coming up with off the round bat. It's, it's just, you know, it's, it's fairly... Kind of a sports psychologist type yeah, term. Yeah, it's, it's kind of, um, it is a sort of, uh, for, for people who would think in terms of energy, uh, it is kind of a well-known term. I mean, I've just been looking at some some sort of facts about energy vampires. Um, let's see, who's this by? Some some sort of PhD from a New York Times bestseller. Relationships are always an energy exchange. To say, feeling our best, we must ask ourselves, who gives us energy? Who saps it? Um, so uh, energy vampires are people who leech your energy, whether they intend to or not. Uh, energy vampires exude negative energy that drains... Vampires range from the intentionally malicious ones to those who are oblivious to their effect. Some are overbearing and obnoxious. Others are friendly and charming. For example, you're at a party talking to a perfectly nice person, but suddenly you're nauseous or weak. 
Or how about the coworker who drones on about how she broke Barney up with her lobster. boyfriend for the 10th time? Eventually, she feels better, but you're spent. The bottom line is that in a subtle energy level, these people suck you dry. Exercise. Take an inventory of people in your life who give energy and people who drain. Specifically, identify the energy vampires and begin to evaluate ones you'd like to limit contact with or eliminate. Um, note how this beneficially affects physical and emotional well-being. But yeah, but where do the mood hoovers come in? Mood hoovers. <laughs> mood hoovers. Is that yeah, another, is yeah, that that's another one. one. Yeah, they right. suck the life and energy out of you. You know the ones. <laughs> when you walk into a meeting, see them sitting there, and your heart sinks. <laughs> oh, I know a mood hoover or two around this place. Mood hoovers moan. Mood hoovers blame. Mood hoovers complain. <laughs> mood hoovers, kid. Mood hoovers, energy hoovers. Uh, I mean, there's ways to deal with them. Um, you know, meditate daily, smile at them. Don't engage in conversation with them. Uh, and then further down the list, uh, attempt to help them. I'm kind of like, well, hang on a second. How can you do that? Yeah, I'm silently help them. But I also love the way in which, in which, um, say, your own mood as, as it's altered by an exchange such as this is entirely something to do with, it's, is entirely the fault of the other person in the exchange. You know, it's not because, like, if you've you sometimes had a, you know, talk to somebody where you end up feeling a little bit bad mm. for, for some, at first, unaccountable reason. Usually, if you think about it a little bit more, you can begin to see where it went wrong in your head, you know, but it's not always their fault, really, mm. is it? You know, it's not, I mean, sometimes. It could be that you're not clicking with them. Maybe they find you an energy vampire and you just don't realize. Or, you know, you're. The opposite, too much energy. And you're. You're jealous of them in some way, or you've got some kind of conflicted feelings, you know. But it, but just this this particular school mm. of self help, self help is essentially they're a vampire, yeah. And what you need to do is wave them away with some emotional garlic, or cut them out of your life. Yeah. Um, it's like the, that situation where you know if if you don't if you've never met an energy vampire in a conversation, then that means that you're the energy vampire in every conversation you've ever had. <laughs> that some if you can't see the energy vampire. You're the energy vampire. Yeah. Well, apparently a former Sunderland player. I mean, I can't understand why a former Sunderland player couldn't have been named as the man who, as the, the, the person who came up with the uh, energy vampire tag. This, this is from Craig Hope's piece. There is a nickname being the for David Moyes coined by a former Sunderland player. The energy vampire. Those who hear it for the first time do not really laugh. They nod and sigh. That is what Moyes has done in this football club. He has drained its players, staff and supporters of belief and enthusiasm. He did not have to. He could have made the best of a bad job for the problems he inherited were in a mitigation plenty field, blah, 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 blah. Um, correct me if I'm wrong, but were Sunderland not in a pretty bad way before they pointed David Moyes? Were they not kind of about to be relegated or everybody expecting to be relegated pretty much every one of the last five years and they somehow got away with it each time well they were generally they were usually one Jermaine Defoe three week hamstring strain away from <laughs> getting relegated there for a couple of years yeah you know I think it was kind of I, I wouldn't know if I can pin it all on David Moyes I think I would agree that he hasn't done a good job he, he seems like someone who's really lost uh, confidence that he's kind of mechanically repeating things which he remembers doing at times when he was more successful, but the kind of light has gone out of his eyes a little bit. It's like he can't quite convince himself. He doesn't seem himself convinced that this is going to work. You know, he talks about hopefully all the time. You know, it's just he. he so, so I think there, yeah, there, there is an issue there. But at the same time, this is the worst run club in the league. It has been for years. You know, they've made mistake after mistake. They've signed so many terrible players. It wasn't anything to do with Moyes. Although, you know, some of the, I think it was Louise Taylor's one pointed out that was it 44 or 47 players, the last 47 players Sunderland have signed have not been sold on for a profit. I mean, everyone they sign seems to lose value. And there's an unflattering comparison between Moyes and Marco Silva. Why does it always have to be a foreign manager? Mm -hmm. Well, one reason is that the foreign manager knows a bunch of foreign players who uh, might be able to come in and, immediately help your team start playing a lot better, which is what has happened with with Hull and Marco Silva. He immediately signed several players. Remember, they they sold like Snodgrass uh, and another player almost immediately when he arrived. And it's like, well, 
Snodgrass they've is their given best up. player. They're gone. You know, they, they're just trying to cut their losses. Actually, it looks like they're going to stay up now. It doesn't have to be an, uh, an Irish. It doesn't have to be a foreign manager either, though. It just has to be a good manager. Sam Allardyce comes in and does the job perfectly. Yeah. Well, Sam, Sam Allardyce is someone who's, who's managed to stay well abreast of the transfer market. You know, I, I, I mean, th- this idea of our Premier League experience, you know, people talk about it being important for, for players. I think for managers, ma- managers can kind of become all consumed by it and forget about the world outside it, which is actually where most of the footballers are. And all of the cheap good ones, all of them, any, the, the, the number, the footballers who are both good and cheap, none of them are, you're going to find none of them in the Premier League. So you have to be kind of aware. I kind of feel as though Moyes, Moyes was, was saying stuff like, we've got to be more British you know, he, he dropped a couple of um, African players saying, oh, we, you know, I just felt we could have done with more of a British attitude. You know, that's that's a little bit too uh, inward looking, I'm afraid. You know what I mean? You're going to need to cast the net a little bit wider if you're going to succeed in, you know, keeping Sunderland in the Premier League. So, yeah, Eden Hazard and N'Golo Kante and Diego Costa and these kind of guys have... Mm. What you might call an old, well, Hazard maybe not, but an old, an old school British mentality if, you're, if you want to go down those national stereotypes. I don't think you actually have to be British to have that old Lionheart spirit necessarily. No, no, I don't think so. All right, let's wrap this report on sport. What have I become? My sweetest friend. I mean, at the time I thought that you were completely in the right. Everyone I know. But now I think. Should have just played anyway. I, I'm surprised you're really asking that question. No, well, it doesn't matter really what you think. My yeah, you weren't there at the time. I will let you down. You, you weren't a, an international player. I will make you hurt. And you had the frustrations I had. If I could start again. Played at the international level, a million miles away. and you hadn't been accused of faking an injury. So, I will keep myself. What you think doesn't really matter. I would find a way. John Bruin saw Manchester City held by Middlesbrough at the weekend. John and Pep Guardiola generally is given the benefit of the doubt which he's probably earned over a good few years there seems to be an idea that once he buys in a few players who can do what he needs them to do then his vision will be realised the only issue with this is that it seems like City having started the season really well they actually aren't any closer to developing this vision or this identity it seems as though this might have been another example at the weekend they, they change a lot game to game there's actually no real consistency well yeah I I think the thing there's this thing, isn't there, uh, in football these days, which is if we buy a load of players and everything will change and everything will be for the better. The problem for Manchester City is that you look at that team um, to, and, and if they want them to play the Guardiola style of play, uh, to, to use a phrase, um, they have um, probably need to get about eight players in. Because if you go through that team, um, that, that I saw yesterday, I mean, Willie Caballero not convincing at all in goals. Obviously, Claudio Bravo has been an utter disaster. Uh, on the wing-backs that he used yesterday, he started with a 3-5-2 formation. Uh, Jesus Navas, uh, a player who my friend Richard Jolly uh, enjoys keeping a tally on, has not scored for over three years and has not supplied an assist, I think, in over 100 games. Uh, and then Gail Clichy, a player out of contract this summer and nowhere near the player he was as an Arsenal player. Then we move into midfield. Fernandinho is a player out of form. Um, and you know, there's a team that doesn't play well unless David Silva's in the team these days. He's a player who was bought by the club six, seven years ago. So Guardiola shifts his team around. I think there was three different formations he tried yesterday during the game, uh, including making a formation change at half-time and then making a substitution four minutes later, a double substitution. Um, all a bit chaotic. Um when you actually think of Barcelona, think of Guardiola, you think of Barcelona and the way that they played um, under him from, say, you know, 2008 to 2011-12. They, they didn't have a rigid style of play, but you knew the style that they were going to play in. But at Manchester City, there isn't really a style that you could attribute to that team. 
John, just uh, that, <laughs> I hadn't realised your colleague at ESPN, Richard Jolly, had been keeping such close tabs on these amazing Jesus Navas stats. And just as you were speaking there, I've just Googled it. Pretty funny stuff. Jesus Navas almost ends his 1,022-day wait for a goal. On comes Jesus Navas, who has gone 1,009 days. It's just go, I'm gone in reverse <laughs> order there maybe a little bit. But that, that's, can you give us those stats again? Well, yeah, I, th- I think I think he passed his three-year anniversary quite recently uh, of having, not having scored for Manchester City. I don't think he's applied an assist uh, for at least the last two seasons. How is this guy at the club? It's insane. Well, and also, this guy plays almost every game. Now, uh, it's something that I always laugh about with Richard, uh, is that, you know, Pellegrini seems to select him every game. The joke was at City that Navas was Pellegrini's long-lost son. But Guardiola seems to have exactly the same thoughts about him. The only solace for Manchester City fans that I do believe is out of contract this summer. Mm-hmm. I mean, is there any evidence so far, uh, John, do you think that the that Guardiola's intensely tactical approach, I mean, it, by, by which I mean very sophisticated game plans, which often change radically from week to week, depending on the kind of game that he expects his team to be uh, to find themselves in, is gonna is not really going to take in the Premier League that that it may simply be a little bit too um, chaotic, a little bit too kind of uh, intense for, and, and maybe the players, maybe the players that he's got at Manchester City are a little bit too reluctant to um, to take that much on board. That that maybe it, it's not actually going to work out in the in the long run. Yeah, I mean, I, I do think that there's a problem with with players. Um, in, in central midfield, I mean, that's always been key to a Guardiola team. And let us recall that at Barcelona, he had a midfield with Xavi, Iniesta, uh, Sergio Busquets, and at, and at Bayern Munich, you know, Xabi Alonso and, and players like that. Manchester City don't have that quality of player. They tried to get one with Gundogan, but they bought a player who was injury-prone and he suffered an injury. The big problem for Manchester City... Uh, at the moment is midfield which seems strange to say that about a manager who once tried to fill 10 midfielders as his outfield players in a match you know Guardiola is all about midfield that game against Middlesbrough yesterday you saw Middlesbrough's main weapon was to make great big counter-attacks straight through the middle of Manchester City's midfield where there are great aching gaps Um, I do think that Guardiola's you know, Guardiola has that reputation of uh, supreme preparation and, uh, you know, hours of fasting, starving himself as he flicks through DVDs of opponents. But he seemed completely unprepared to play Middlesbrough. Now, that was Middlesbrough's best performance of the season, I'm told by a few people that were up there yesterday. But it was always going to be the case that Middlesbrough would attempt to, to get at Manchester City on the counter. But it seemed to me that he played a formation which essentially fitted in he admitted afterwards that the formation was so that he could play Gabriel Jesus and uh, Sergio Aguero together. But it seemed that he hadn't concentrated on how that might work in a game like that, which might leave his team exposed. And, you know, this is a team with a poor defence. So you would have thought you'd attempt to lock down that defence. I think there's, he's trying to do too many things at once, doesn't have the players. And maybe, this has always been the accusation that we thought that about him, uh, he's trying to be too clever. And a lot of the time, the Premier League is, doesn't have to be that clever at all, does it? No. Um, I mean, I was struck by his um, demeanour, uh, the recent Manchester derby, where he seemed to... Uh, he, his attitude was so condescending. The interviews that I saw him uh, do... like It's he, always condescending. He's, yeah. he's, he's, uh, you know, he's obviously... There are, are worse managers than Pep Guardiola oh, in terms yeah. of the treatment of the press. But I always find he's... There's, he's a little lofty when he's answering questions, even on TV. A lot, uh, like, uh, yeah, and uh, you know, he, he like he he was kind of felt pretty insulted that he had to stand there talking to this idiot, you know, with the microphone. That that was very much the impression he was giving. I just thought it was a little bit too much, you know. It was kind of like, what what makes you think you're so special that you can't just be civil? I mean, okay, that's just. You know, maybe he wasn't having a great day or whatever, and it was before he was tense before the game and all that kind of stuff. But I mean, you mentioned you were up at Millsburg, John. You're obviously there. The few of the people there would have been, you know, uh, people who cover Manchester City uh, on a pretty regular basis. I mean, did you get the what did you get the sense from the, what, what sense did you get from them in terms of their relationship with Guardiola and how they feel he's managing, let's say, the mood at the club? 
I think I think I think there's a bit of a split in the camp, really. Uh, there are those that already think he's a bit of a well. How can I put this? A, a maestro. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> no, 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 let's, um, you know, not the, the, no one likes it sort of tall poppy. He's super confident. He's super cool. That type of thing. Um, yeah, condescending is the word. Sometimes a little snide, I think, with the things that he says to people. Um, but there are others that are supporters of his that you know w- w- would would tend to see that there is some vision there, and um, it's going to take longer than a season. And you know, that it's not like being parachuted into a Barcelona team with Lionel Messi or sort of a Bayern Munich team that's won the treble, the Champions League. It's a very different task. Um, my personal view is that uh, that second season is going to be just as difficult because they're going to have to bed in even more players. Um, and they they were the biggest spenders in the transfer market last summer and really didn't have a particular success amongst any of those purchases. Um, it's something that is a problem behind the scenes is the, the transfer dealings done by the uh, Cheeky Bergerstein and Ferran Soriano who have not really passed muster in recent years. What you're left with the manager who dealing with potential rather than what he's achieved so far. I mean, uh, if you recall that Manuel Pellegrini was dismissed and there was a bit of a parting shot from the club's owners saying it was disappointing and underachievement. Well, he won the League Cup last season and he finished in the top four. So far, Guardiola hasn't yet achieved that. And uh, they've got an easy enough fixture list. I think they will make it. But it's been really disappointing for them. Um, and, you know, Manchester City, remember that 10, 10 games they won from the start of the season and you just thought this could possibly be one of the best teams we've seen in English football and the fall since then, since actually they drew three all at Celtic, it's been, if you were a Manchester City fan, a Manchester City follower, you'd be a little worried by that. Yeah, I mean, at the same time, you can imagine they could get a lot better a lot in, in a short space of time. You know, if you've got upgrades for players like Clichy and Navas and, uh, you know, a couple of others looking around the team. I mean, they have. I suppose they bought Sané, who was a very young player, it took, a, it took a few weeks to kind of get going. Um, but I suppose if you can buy players like Gabriel Jesus, uh, who just came straight into the team and started scoring goals, scored another brilliant goal yesterday, um, the trick, I suppose, is maybe to get another one or two uh, players of that caliber. But uh, would, the, would the situation generally be for Guardiola that if he can finish ahead of Jose Mourinho and Manchester United in uh, the Premier League this season, that, um, that would be essentially considered to be a successful season? Um, well, it would in, in, in the, I suppose, the uh, the way that things used to be in Manchester football, where, whereby, you know, it was a City rivalry and City finishing above United was the limit of their ambitions. But Manchester City are a club that looks way beyond Manchester these days. So they'd be looking to, uh, to win titles and actually Champions League dreams are what the club really have, you know. Um, Pellegrini was fired after getting to the semi-finals of that competition last night, and it was at last season. It was decided that it was an unsatisfactory performance against Real Madrid. I mean, or, or okay, Guardiola was already coming in at that point. Um, I, I, I think you make a good point earlier that I mean, Leroy Sané has been a good player for for Manchester City this season, although was uh, a little mischievous in winning the penalty for them yesterday. And yeah, that, that's a fair point about Gabriel Jesus. If, if he hadn't have broken his foot, maybe things would have been a bit different because I think there was that glimpse around the time he came into the team of what Guardiola was expected to bring to Manchester City. Um, if you actually look at Jesus as a player, There's a um, there was one point in the game yesterday where Middlesbrough went launched on another of those counter-attacks and the player that was racing hard, the hardest of all to get back and, and, and stop them was Jesus, which was, you know, which is exactly what Guardiola wants from his team. I think, you know, maybe if Manchester City are to, to, to move forward from there, he's going to be a symbol of that team. What that says about Sergio Aguero, we'll have to see. Uh, but, yeah, I think um, City, well, who knows about them at the moment, apart from... The fact that Guardiola really needs to improve. Beating United's not enough for him because 
uh, on, on the other side of it, I think Manchester United have had a pretty disappointing season themselves. Yeah, I think that's fair enough. John Broom, brilliant stuff. Thanks, Mel. Cheers, lads. A flame hair, flame hair, flame hair, truth, Mr. Ken Early. Mr. Ken Early. Mr. Ken Early. Every so often, I'm on the bus and I suddenly turn around to bite somebody. John Hayes, I'm talking about, Aaron. Yeah. John Hayes. Now, I always thought that was ridiculous. He had won the victory over himself. He loved Brendan Rogers. That's where it goes from. Thanks a lot, Pepe. Fair to say, anybody could have managed those guys? No, of course not. Let me show you right now before you give it up. Is there any chance that Jesus Navas is just one of these guys who does the unseen work? Well, he must be doing something. How is he still in this team? Um, well, I suppose they haven't really found anyone consistently better than him for the type of job that he does. But what type of job is he doing if he's not assisting or scoring any goals? Well, he's kind of a wing-back these days. Yeah. At least he has been God. in recent times. Well, obviously, Guardiola changes the formations a lot, even in, in individual wing, matches. Wing-back for just an sees, extremely He just sees team. the game in such binary ways, doesn't he? Yeah. I mean, open your eyes to the full expanse of the football experience. Mm. On. I mean, I mean can, can you boil this down purely to just... Well, I mean, sure... Obviously, he's an attacking player. He's played, you know, on the uh, in the last third of the pitch for a, you know, large a part of his career. Of but I mean, at the end of the day, on that's you know. I mean, if you look at if you, City, obviously have better players than him. I mean, if you look at Sterling, for instance, he's clearly much more talented player than Navas. But would you play him as a wing back? I think Brendan Rodgers tried that, and it didn't end so well. He was very young at that time. I think you could play Sterling as a wing back. Oh, I don't think you should, though. Not necessarily. No, I don't think you'd like it. But, I mean, whereas Navas is, is clearly a humble a humble man, he's, he, he's got a, you could say a lot to be humble about, but he's not, he's not sort of... Cheap yeah. shot! He's not sashaying around the, the training ground, sort of saying, I demand to be played in my favoured uh, role, you know, high up the field. You know, he, he'll do whatever. Mm. And that's... Probably the one quality that managers love more in a footballer than anything else. Just do what you, the players who do what they're told. It's such a precious thing when you find it in a player, and it can uh, prolong careers uh, at uh, mystifyingly at the top level. Jack Pitbrook was at White Hart Lane to cover the North London, London Derby for the Independent. Uh, fairly jubilant White Hart Lane by the looks of the things there, Jack. Yeah, I mean, in the first half, the atmosphere was actually a little bit flat. I wonder if it was a hangover from from Chelsea winning at Everton. But the second half, when Tottenham cranked up the energy, uh, the crowd went with them, and they, I mean, they blew Arsenal away in the second half. And it, and by the end, it was certainly an atmosphere befitting the occasion, which was good because there was a the problem with the game. I thought is that it didn't even feel like a derby. Like I remember back in. February 2015, when Tottenham beat Arsenal 2-1 at home, they kind of overwhelmed them with their energy and power. Whereas this was such a mismatch of quality. Like Tottenham, it didn't look or feel like a derby. It looked like a good team against a bad team. And sometimes when that happens, it means you don't get the atmosphere that it deserved. But fortunately, by the end, uh, we kind of we, we they, they got there in the end, basically. Although it, it was... Arsenal's badness almost ruined the whole game, I think, for the spectators. We talked earlier in the season about Tottenham and their problems scoring goals, which they were having a problem scoring goals at the time, and they don't have that problem anymore because they're the second-top scorers in the league. 71 goals is just one behind Chelsea. Um, how did they solve the problem? I think that... I, so I know, I, Miguel spoke about this last week after the Chelsea game. I think that Tottenham are... Tottenham aren't very good, I think, at scoring against the very best defences because they have this kind of predictability problem. But the Arsenal defence is not very good, particularly when they're playing this new back three, which they're not very comfortable in doing. And therefore, it wasn't that difficult for Tottenham to overwhelm them. I mean, the reason they're scoring more goals is basically because all their good players are playing well at the moment. Like, Kane is playing incredibly well, given that he's just come back from another ankle injury. Eriksen's playing as well as he's ever done. Ali's playing as well as he's ever done. So those are the guys, really, who kind of make it all happen. But uh, I think that, like, that isn't to say that Tottenham has solved their structural problems. It's more just that all their individuals are clicking at the same time right now. It's interesting that you mentioned Arsenal playing a back three. And you also talked a little bit uh, in your in your piece from the match about how they had um, tried to press Tottenham a little bit more than Arsenal usually would, or a little bit higher uh, up the field. So 
What we can see here is some effort by Arsene Wenger to change, I guess, or to maybe update uh, what Arsenal have been doing, which is quite unusual for him because he was kind of famous for, well, for a long time he just played 4-4-2, then he kind of changed it to some variant of 4-5-1, and he never really changes. It's the same uh, position every time. He, he doesn't even change um, the tactical setup in a game. It's usually just straight swaps or players moving around, but the same setup. So why do you think we're seeing this sudden um, experimental Wenger? I think it's... Be- one, because the other, you know, what they've been doing was so clearly not working, like they were heading for sixth. Uh, but also I think it's kind of because of the internal politics of the club. Like, Zedis has to make it look as if Arsenal are changing things. It's not just going to be more of the same next year, which is why there's going to be this whole raft of proposed uh, backroom changes at the club. Whereas Wenger, and I think Wenger knows this and is slightly kind of, He's slightly discomforted by it because he knows that. It, I mean, ultimately, it's a, it's a bit of a challenge to him and his the way he runs the club. And therefore, I think it kind of it's politically helpful for Wenger to say, "Hey, look, I'm I am doing something different. Look at me, I'm playing the same formation everyone else does nowadays." Um, so I think that's part of it. That said, I think that I think it seems quite kind of like surface level. Like it's you know he's just decided a few weeks ago this was the right idea because other people were doing it. But the fact is, that if you look at say. Chelsea and Tottenham, they've been working all season on back threes and training and everything. Tottenham have been playing it in their own way for longer than it looks. And that means, whereas Arsenal has just, they've just kind of thrown this at the players. And you can tell this because the players aren't obviously aren't comfortable doing it. So I think it's a quite, it's, it's a cosmetic change, I think, and a political, like, born out of political expediency rather than a kind of rethinking of how Arsenal are going to play in the future. Jack, last quick question. Are Spurs going to have are you giving Spurs any chance of putting this off? Well, no. I mean, I don't think they are going to do it, which is a shame because they're going to get like they're going to get like eighty-five points or something. They're on what seventy-seven now, and they've got four four games left. Um, they're going to be the best. I think they, they, there's a case they could be the best non-champions ever, or certainly one of them, which is amazing anyway, and even more so given that like the the sort of imbalance of resources they have against the other big teams in the Premier League. I mean, I remember, I remember speaking about this with you guys last year, that they were like they were probably better than Leicester, even though they screwed up at the end and Leicester won the league. And yet that's kind of... I'm not saying they're better than Chelsea, but they're so much better now than they were last year. Well, Ken always says it, so you can join the chorus if you want, Jack. Don't you? Yeah, they, I mean, they are. like cert, I mean, certainly mathematically, we, we, we've all seen the table, which shows Premier League points over the last two seasons. They have been the best team. I think this year, you could even say this year that they've been caught out by that amazing Chelsea winning streak. And if, say, I was thinking about this the other day, if Kevin De Bruyne had scored against Chelsea when he hit the bar from the open goal on, what, December the 9th, that could have ended the Chelsea run earlier. And then who knows what would have happened to the rest of Chelsea's season. But, I mean, all that said, in short, no, they're not going to win the title. They're just going to be um, unlucky, you know, unlucky but brilliant second placers who are going to find it even harder, I think, to get back there next season. All right, Jack Pickbrook, always good to talk. Thanks, Mill. Cheers, lads. Bye. It didn't look like a derby game. It just looked like a good team against a bad team. Uh, as damning an indictment of Arsenal's current form, as you're going to hear. What about that idea of this Spurs team being the best non-champions ever if they go and get it done? Who, who are the rivals? We're looking well, at what, what, what team immediately comes to mind for you? Newcastle? Well, the the Manchester United team in 2012, it, not that not so much because I remember them as such an irresistibly good team, but I do remember they got a huge amount of points, 89 points. Newcastle, uh, 95-96, got 78 points on, and that's nowhere near good enough. Uh, well, it's not just about points, it's well, about style, it's well. about swashbuckling. Uh, well, the United, right. the, the United team in 2012 got 89 points and 89 goals, which is pretty good, to be mm-hmm. fair. But basically, yeah. uh, up until 2005, 78 points is looking pretty good. But then, in the era of the big four, basically, all the top teams just kept hammering all of the other teams. So, I mean, I think that does probably skew the yeah. uh, skew the thing slightly. But You're saying Man United, that, you, that what season did you say that was? 2012, 89 oh, yeah, points, yeah. 89 goals. Liverpool in 2014, 84 points, 101 goals scored. <sighs> probably Brandy. also deserves a mention. Yeah. Uh, 86 points for Liverpool in 2009. I mean, I don't know that many people are... Naming the Liverpool team of 2009 as one of the great teams of the last 20 years. But they did get 86 points. Yeah. I mean, they won their last 10 matches or something, apart from the one against Arsenal. So they kind of 
um, made up ground straight on, but I think they left themselves too much to do. There was a bit of a problem also, if you saw, I don't know if you saw on the video, um, of, of Robbie from Arsenal Fan TV uh, making his way from Tottenham uh, with a police escort and being barracked no. and abused by Tottenham fans. Yeah. Um, uh, Arsenal Fan TV had also unveiled a, a deal with The Sun uh, they had they had done a video with the Sun where they were sort of talking about their pre-match preparations and so on and so forth, which didn't seem like a universally popular move, judging by some of the comments underneath it. You know, there's people suggesting that maybe they shouldn't have pursued that particular commercial link-up. Mm. Um, but then outside the ground at Tottenham, uh, you could see this uh, situation, and and he himself uh, had tweeted later that he had been racially abused by people um, right. shouting out... Uh, Shannon had some pretty unpleasant stuff, so that wasn't nice. This is our only podcast today, it being a bank holiday Monday, but if you fancy hearing us talking to Ken Doherty in Sheffield 20 years on from his world title win The Crucible, well, all you need to do is get onto Ortiz's website and listen back to our guest hosting at the Ryan Tuberty Show on Radio 1 this morning, where we also spoke to Catherine Switzer, one of the trailblazers in women's long-distance running. She was the first woman to officially enter the Boston Marathon in 1967, wasn't it? And was almost physically forced off the course for her troubles. Catherine was back running Boston a couple of weeks ago at 70 years of age, marking the 50th anniversary of that momentous race in 67. That was all this morning. I think we've spent enough time together this Bank Holiday Monday. I feel like I've got a mood hoover on one side, an energy vampire on the other. So now I'm drinking beer at <laughs> yeah. 2 o'clock in the afternoon. It's quite unprofessional. Seems though, like that's what I'm doing, yeah. It's all our fault, Tone. Whatever you do, don't think at all about your own mind and what's going on in there. It's Just all point, our fault. Point the fingers at the energy vampires. I feel that's about right. Thanks, guys. Thanks for listening. Which one is that? That's the second time it's gone off. They never go home. They never go home. They never go home, those, those, those boys. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. Meet 2024's most anticipated robot vacuum, Eufy X10 Pro Omni. With powerful 8,000 PA suction and MopMaster's dual mop pads, it keeps your floor sparkling clean. It's the winner of five Best of CES awards, and Digital Trends says it boasts almost all the same features as robot vacuums that cost twice as much. Want to know more? Go to eufy.com, that's E-U-F-Y.com, and discover X10 Pro Omni, the best-in-class all-in-one robot vacuum for only $799.